You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, church family. Good to see you. Welcome this morning to Redeemer. It is such a, a gift and a joy and a privilege to get week after week and be renewed like a spring rain. See how I did that? With the goodness of the gospel and the truths of God's word and fellowship with brothers and sisters. And so, so glad that you're here this morning. We're continuing in our study of the gospel of Mark. We're in chapter three. We've been making our way slowly through Mark's gospel, looking to answer the question that Mark puts before us, who is Jesus? Who is he? And um, in our text today, um, we get into, we kind of have parallel text. Uh, there, it's, it's happen- two things are happening at the same time. They're paralleling one another, and they're really bringing, um, they're bringing before us two groups of people that are experiencing unbelief. Um, have, you, have you ever been in a situation in your life where people don't believe you? Have you ever been in that situation? Uh, there was a situation like this for me many years ago. Uh, I was on the ninth hole of the Reese Golf Course in Lubbock, Texas, and I teed off with a six iron, and I made a hole in one. And I was golfing by myself that day, which is what I used to do back, you know, those glorious years, where, you know, where you don't have kids and there's not much else to do on a Saturday, just go play golf by yourself. I was golfing by myself that day. The only eyewitnesses to my hole in one on, on the ninth hole, uh, the Reese Golf Course, were two older men who were ahead of me and they were walking off the green, both of them smoking cigars, and they... They, you know, I teed off as they're walking off the green, and they, they see the hole in one. They see the ball go in the hole, and they start hooping and hollering. And I walk up, and they go, man, you did it. You, hole in one, it's amazing. And they shared with me that they've been playing golf for decades, and they've never witnessed a hole in one. And I was there. I was, I was the man. I, you know, I gave them what they've been looking for. I made a hole in one. Um, and then I began to tell my friends and my roommates. I called my dad, who plays a lot of golf. I told my brother. But yet nobody would believe me. Nobody would believe me. And I started, you know, I think about that. Why not? Like, why, why is it that these people don't believe me? Well, the truth is, is that unbelief, no matter the circumstance or the situation, is always rooted in something. Well, for my friends and my family that wouldn't believe me, perhaps it was rooted in the fact that, um, uh, for one, I'm not a very good golfer. And so there was maybe some, some skepticism. It's rooted in skepticism. Like, we've played golf with you before. Uh, you've never like hit the ball straight. Um, so they didn't believe me. Maybe for, for, some, for others, it was rooted in some jealousy. Um, even really good golfers, like to make a hole in one is super rare. So maybe there was some jealousy. Um, the point is, is that in, in unbelief, anytime there's unbelief, it's always rooted in something. There's always a source. And now my, my story, it was a silly, fun little story, but perhaps there's some of you that there have been times in your life where people haven't believed something about you or something that you've done. They haven't believed you, and it's been more painful. It's been a more painful situation. Like I was just talking with someone recently that was telling me about how they're the executor of the will. They've had a family member that's passed away, and they're exe- the executor of the will, and there's a lot of family drama that's going on. And their, their siblings are not believing their intentions about how they're administering the will. And there's some narratives that are being created. You know, for me, as a, as a person who hit a hole in one, the narrative was, you're a liar. You're lying. You didn't really do that. Well, in this situation, it's certainly more painful. It's they're, 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 they're making up narrative about this particular person. You're greedy. You're this. You're that, right? And these things can be more painful. 
What we have in our text today is we have Jesus, who's on the other end of, other, of some people's unbelief. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to attempt to try and identify the source, what's underneath the unbelief, and he's going to offer, in one situation, a sobering warning, in the other situation, a scary reality. The title of my sermon today is, Jesus Confronts Our Unbelief. Let me pray for us, and we'll get back into the text. Almighty God, we come before you again, and we thank you that you are near to us. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your word and in your son, Jesus. And we pray that you would prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. We pray in this moment that you would silence any other voices but the voice of your Holy Spirit, that we might hear your word, that we might receive it with a humble heart, and that we might be renewed by your truth and your grace through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Well, again, the title of my sermon is Jesus Confronts Our Unbelief. And now, there might be some of you who are thinking, well, I'm a Christian. I'm not an unbeliever. This sermon isn't for me. And I would just lovingly say to you, you're wrong. Um, The reality is, is that we all battle with unbelief in God. Even those of us who have confessed saving faith in Jesus, we very much struggle to walk by faith day to day. We very much struggle with unbelief. Now, that doesn't mean that we aren't saved, but it does mean that unbelief can manifest itself in our life that can cause us to be prone to wander and at times even stray far from God. And so what we have in our text today is that we have two groups of people who are falling into unbelief. The first is Jesus's family. Um, who uh, very much, I believe, knows who Jesus is. They very much, I believe, believes that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, but that they have fallen into some unbelief in this particular moment. And then we have a second group, the scribes, who have very much rejected Jesus. They are refusing him. They reject him as God's Messiah. In fact, it even is becoming clear that they hate him. And these two groups find what Jesus has been doing As we've been walking through Mark, we've seen it. They find what Jesus has been doing most recently hard to grasp, hard to understand. And so in their wrestle with unbelief for different reasons and with different motives, they assign Jesus a narrative. One of them says he is crazy. They say he's a lunatic. He's a madman. And the others, the scribes, say that he is evil, that he's demonic. Now, what's interesting is that in Jesus' day, there were really only three options for answering the question, who is Jesus? It was that he is a madman, he's insane, is that he's evil, he's a blasphemer, or he's Lord. That's it. Like in our world today, there's some people that will kind of say, well, he was a good teacher, he was a man of love and peace. That wasn't an option in Jesus' day, because there's no way that you could logically reconcile that. How could Jesus be a good teacher when he said some of the things that he said? He's either insane, he's a blasphemer, or he's Lord. Jesus answers both of these two groups, the ones who say he's a madman, he's a lunatic, and the ones who say he's evil, he's demon-possessed. He answers them separately, but he answers them both with a warning, one that is sobering, one that is terrifying. But in both instances, Jesus, with grace and truth, confronts unbelief and calls us to greater degree of faith. Let's begin with the unbelief of Jesus' family. Starting in verse 20. Let's look back at the text. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered and eat. And when his family heard it, they went out 
to seize him, and they were saying, he is out of his mind. Um, I don't know if you remember where we left off in the study of Mark's gospel last week, but Jesus had retreated to the hills where he appointed 12 from among his following to become apostles. And we said last week that this was a strong message that Jesus was making, that the hills of central Galilee were places that revolutionaries went when they were ready to start a movement. And so Jesus, choosing 12 in the hills, was symbolic that he was doing something new among Israel. It was the beginning of this new movement of grace that was on its way, that was coming into the world through Jesus. And I think it's pretty safe to assume that at this point, word had spread about what Jesus had launched as a revolutionary in the hills, appointing 12. In fact, the text tells us that word had spread so much that, number one, large crowds of people were awaiting him as he came back to his home base, Capernaum. And number two, that scribes were sent from Jerusalem, almost like surveillance, to put their eyes on Jesus and kind of try and control the situation. And as we can see, all of this starts to become too much for Jesus' family. It's just getting a bit too chaotic. It's getting a bit too out of control. And there is unbelief that manifests in their minds. And so they create a narrative about Jesus. Do you see that? Do you see how they do that? It's that things are feeling hectic. Things are feeling out of control. They can't quite make sense of what Jesus is doing. So they create a narrative about him. What do they say? They say, he's crazy. They say, we have to go get him. We have to bring him home. He's lost his mind. What is he doing? He's supposed to be the Messiah of Israel. What is he doing? We got to go get him. In fact, it's really pretty close to like a family planning an intervention. That's really, it's really pretty close to what's happening here. They, 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 you, could, you could really think of it that way. And, and what, what they're talking about here is it's talking about Jesus' mother, Mary, Jesus' half-brothers. Most scholars all agree that it's most likely that Joseph, uh, Jesus' um, father, Joseph, died uh, in, in, his, um, in his, during his childhood, likely his later years of his childhood, that Mary remarries, that he ha- Jesus has half-brothers and sisters as a result of this. And so, um, now, but here's what we have to do. We have to reconcile the fact that Mary and Jesus' family is at this moment of saying he's lost it. He's gone crazy. We have to reconcile that with the fact that in Luke's gospel, it's very, very clear to us that Mary knows who Jesus is. That she, by the way, that Christmas song, Mary, did you know? The answer is yes. She did know. The angel told her. She very much know, knows. And she responded with faith, with, with an outworking of faith, praising God, um, um, walking by faith. Uh, obeying what it is that God told her to do. She knew that her son was the Messiah. But here she is in a moment of clear unbelief, of clear doubt. How do we get to this point? Well, we have to understand that what Jesus has been doing would not have fit anyone's framework for what Messiah would do. No one, even Mary and even Jesus' brothers. It's likely that Jesus' family is is not doubting that Jesus is the Messiah. It's more likely that they are concerned that Jesus has gotten out of line with God's plan for the Messiah, right? Rather than leading Israel up and out of Roman occupation, which is what 
every uh, uh, God-fearing Jew thought that the Messiah would come and do, would lift them up and out of Roman occupation and raise them up and that they would rule the world and that all the nations would be blessed through their socio-political reign. Rather than Jesus doing that, it seems Jesus is instead determined to spend his time lifting these sinners and these sufferers up out of brokenness. It seems Jesus is determined to bring the Pharisees and the religious elite low rather than bring Rome low. And Mary obviously is confused by this. The point is, is that Jesus' family is experiencing a crisis of doubt because Jesus is in no way meeting even their expectations, right? I mean, the religious leaders, Mary would have very much respected them. And so here it seems Jesus is making their life more chaotic. Jesus is making their life more intense. The religious leaders are now even out to get Jesus, which obviously makes things difficult for her. There's tension there for her, no doubt. And so what do they do? Their life is getting more chaotic. It's getting uncomfortable because of Jesus. And so they say he has gone mad. In fact, the language in verse 21 where it says they went out to seize him, you can underline that in your Bible if you're a Bible underliner, it really is, is it's, it's strong. It's, it's like they're, they're going out to arrest him. That's why I said earlier, it's like a family intervention. Like they're going out to try and like seize him, like bind him up and get him out of there and bring him home because he's completely lost it. In other words, there's real passion here. What they want is they want to stop him. They want to get him under control. Now, I want to ask you to hear me for a second, because there are some of us who have been exactly where Jesus' family is in this moment, in this text. There's some of us who have been here, and I'm not talking about with a family member. There's some of you who have been here with Jesus, like you've been exactly where Jesus' family is with Jesus, where you felt like Jesus has let things or caused things to get out of control in your life where there have been moments for you, maybe some of you are even here right now, where you feel like he's not really been a good Messiah. Like he's not being a good king. He's not being a faithful savior. Like look at my life, look at what's happening. And you've, your doubt, your unmet expectations, it's led you to want to take back control of your life. Unbelief has manifested and it's made you go, maybe we need to go actually, I need to like bind him up and like make him stop that you don't see him for who he truly is, and that you've failed to trust him with the circumstances of your life. And so I want to ask you to listen carefully to Jesus' words to his family as he confronts their need for control and he confronts their unbelief. Look at his warning, look at his rebuke in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside... They sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is a doubly powerful word from Jesus. It's powerful to those who are sitting around trusting him, those disciples who have followed him and entrusted themselves to him. It's a powerful word to them. And it's a powerful word to those who are presently doubting him. 
Jesus offers a sobering warning to his family. He says, look at your unbelief. He says, pay attention to where your doubt and your unbelief and your need for control is taking you. He says, I'm not crazy. I don't need to be bound up and carried off. I'm not out of control. I am doing the will of the Father. In fact, God's will is to form a new family, Jesus essentially says. And this plan of God, this purpose of God, it is bigger than Israel. It's to unite uh, in Jesus something more powerful than what human blood and even human DNA can unite. Through the blood of Jesus, God is doing something greater in the world. He's forming a new family and a new people for his grace and by his glory. Jesus is essentially saying here in a subtle way, God is doing something greater. He's doing a much um, more significant rescue than rescuing you from Rome. He's essentially saying your perspective on who I am and what I'm doing is far too small. And those who trust me, that is, those who do the will of God. Do you see that in the text? What is the will of God? The will of God is to trust him. To trust him. Not to try and control him or use him or manipulate him to meet your purposes. Jesus is not an accessory in any of our lives. Jesus is not a cosmic genie in the sky. He is Lord. He is King. So he says those who do the will of God, those who live by faith, those who trust him, these are the ones who are my family. They are my true family. And his warning is strong. I want you to look at where your doubt is taking you this morning. If you're struggling with unmet expectations in your life, where is your doubt taking you? Jesus tells his family, your doubt is taking you to the place of wanting to actually bind me up and curse me rather than trust me and bless me. And this is something that Mark does a lot uh, in his gospel, especially as we're into the second part of Mark's gospel, is that he will kind of cast a shadow of the cross over the story. And you see it right here, don't you? Jesus is essentially telling them, rather than trusting me and blessing me, you want to bind me and curse me. Do you see the shadow of the cross? It's a warning. He says, be careful. See your unbelief. I want you to know, though, that I actually think that this is a really, really gracious word from Jesus. I don't think Jesus is being harsh here. I don't think Jesus is like trying to throw a gut punch to his mom here. Not at all. Jesus very much loved his mother. I think this is a gracious and sobering reminder that doubt and unbelief can take you to destructive places. He's offering his family a moment to repent, a moment to reset their faith in him. I believe it's his way of saying, I know that things are getting hectic. I know that things are getting difficult for you. In fact, there is more to come. But don't let doubt lead you astray. Trust me. Trust what God has promised you, even when you can't see it, even when you can't make sense of it. Do the will of the Father. Trust me. That's what he's saying. And if you are here this morning and you are in a similar place where your life has gotten hectic, things are chaotic, you are wavering on whether or not you can entrust yourself to Jesus and entrust your life to Jesus, or if even if you are wondering, Jesus, things feel out of control. Where are you? What are you doing? Will you hear the words of Jesus this morning? Will you see him in this text surrounded by his disciples, surrounded by everyday people who are sinners and sufferers, 
people who are the poor and the marginalized, people that he loves and he has gathered up. Will you see Jesus in this scene this morning who has come into the world, God in flesh who has come into the world on your behalf, who has lived for you, who has loved you, so loved you on your behalf? Will you remember that he suffered for you and that he died for you? Will you take hold of the view of his resurrection that he promises to you that he will indeed raise you up even though you are going through the valley of the shadow of death? He will raise you up and restore you to new life and to new creation. Will you remember that he loves you like family and that he will never abandon you no matter what? you're experiencing. Will you keep trusting him? Do not doubt him. Amen? Amen. He is a good savior and he's a righteous king. And there's one more confrontation with unbelief that Jesus deals with in this scene. In fact, I actually believe they're connected. I think the scribes have shown up from Jerusalem with misinformation. We know quite a bit about misinformation in our day today, don't we? The scribes have shown up from Jerusalem with misinformation, and I think that that's actually what has set Mary and, and, and Jesus' family off a bit. And so Jesus is going to confront them. Um, and in this confrontation, Jesus' words are truly scary. They really are. They're truly scary. Jesus warns those who reject him of committing the unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, there's been a lot of teaching around this, perhaps. Um, if, if you're not a Christian or you're a new believer, actually, you're probably better off than everybody else uh, because there's been a lot of teaching around this. In fact, I even remember being a young kid growing up in the church and kind of going through a season of my life where I was like worried, like, did I commit the unforgivable sin? Oh, hope I didn't do it. Oh, maybe I did. Like, there's been a lot of teaching around this. So what I want to do is I want to try and just like handle this well and help us understand in the context of Mark what Jesus is actually talking about when he talks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So I want to handle it well. So look back at verse 22. <clears throat> and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. So, so scribes from Jerusalem have made their way to Capernaum and they've come with a deliberate message. Don't miss this. Like they have clearly convened. That's what the scribes were. They were like a, a, a committee, if you will, a theological committee. And it's got, this is, this is the, like the best, easiest way to understand. They were like fact checkers, okay? So their job was like to, hey, fact check and make sure, like you guys are the experts. And so they've been deployed. They've been deployed to go to Capernaum and let everybody know. They've gotten together. What are we going to say? How, all this stuff he's doing. I mean, he's, he's knocking demons out in the, in the synagogues. He's healing people. Crowds are gathering from everywhere. Like this guy is turning our world upside down. How are we going to stop it? How are we going to control him? Well, let's go tell him he's possessed by a demon. He's Satan. He's of Satan. He's evil. Don't trust him. He's evil. And so they, they show up like deliberately with del a deliberate message that they want to deliver to try and dismiss Jesus. In other words, they are, it's, a, it's a defamation case against Jesus. Like they would totally lose like what, what they're doing. It's intentionally wrong. And Jesus is going to point that out. Jesus is going to say, no, like you're, you're evil. Like the, the, the mercies of God that are breaking into the world in me, through me, and by my power, the clear work of the Holy Spirit manifesting itself on earth, you're saying is from an unclean spirit. Like, that, that's what Jesus is going to say. And so they show up with a deliberate message, and, and Jesus 
therefore, gives a deliberate response, the strongest of all of his words, in which he alludes to the reality of hell. He alludes to eternal sin and eternal separation from God. And this is a scary reality. And so Jesus warns this second group, do not go down the path. Eternal sin, eternal separation from God, it is a scary reality. Don't go down the path. In fact, one commentator that I read this week, he says this about, about the, the kind of these parallel scenes. He says, family members and close friends might misunderstand Jesus. Even his followers might be puzzled or confused by him. But this theological commission, they misinterpret him deliberately. You see, it's one thing to be discouraged and to doubt. It's one thing to be um, beaten up by the ways of this world and the suffering that we endure as human beings, sinners living in a fallen world. It's one thing to be beaten up and discouraged by that and falling into unbelief. In fact, Jesus can deal with that. There is grace that Jesus will pour out. He says in verse 28 that all sins and all blasphemies can be forgiven. There is grace when repentance comes for doubters and deniers and sufferers and strugglers and people that fall into temptation. There is grace for us in Jesus. He says, but to those, to the person that so deeply and fiercely and hard-heartedly denies Jesus, so deliberately defames him that you demonize him, which is what they are very literally doing, attributing his work to Satan, Jesus says two things in his response. One, it's ill-founded and it's illogical, so it's really just stupid. Like he's saying, it's just misinformation. It's just bad information. And two, it is one of the most dangerous paths that a human being can take. Look back at his words. He first uses a parable to show how illogical this false narrative is. Verse 23, And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus is saying, this is basic logic. If Satan is fighting against Satan, why are you even worried? Like, what, why are you even here, scribes from Jerusalem? If Satan's fighting against Satan, you should just be kicked back and relaxing because he won't be able to stand. There's no threat here. There's no power. There's no problem. He's saying, essentially, what you are doing or what human beings have done in every age and in every generation when they are evil people that want to gain or regain control of others, they prey on fear with misinformation or malinformation might be the better term. That's what they're doing. They're trying to regain control by defaming Jesus. And then Jesus uses another parable to warn them, to warn them that they are swimming in very, very dangerous waters. Look at verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. So unless you bind up and tie up the more powerful one, until you do that, you can't turn his house upside down. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And Mark emphasizes it again at the end. They are attributing the working of the Holy Spirit, the mercies of God, and they are attributing it 
to, to demonic powers. So again, I want to note the grace of Jesus here. I believe that even in one of his harshest sayings, he speaks in a parable, through a parable, to illustrate what he is doing. In other words, he wants them to understand. Sometimes Jesus gives parables that are like intentionally confusing. That's not what he's doing here. He's actually speaking just through kind of simple childhood images to really help them understand. He wants them to see, be careful. Your heart is hardening and you're going down an unforgivable path. In other words, what Jesus is saying with this parable is that he's saying that, uh, what he's saying is that uh, he is not evil, but that he is the stronger man, the one who is binding up evil. He is not Satan. He is the one who is binding up Satan. Uh, He is not uh, causing problems. He is turning the, the problematic nature of evil upside down as God's good rule and reign is breaking into the earth through him. It is sin and evil and death that is being turned upside down by God's mercy. You see, we have to understand that the Jews wanted the Messiah to come and plunder Rome. They wanted the Messiah to come and bind up the emperor, Tiberius. Yet Jesus has been on a different mission from the very beginning. And it's a mission that most among Israel would never understand. It was a mission to show strength and power, to show that he is indeed the stronger one through weakness, to be bound up himself, to be plundered himself by Roman crucifixion, that it would be through sacrificial love, through the very Son of God laying his life down for his friends, that he would show his power. It would be through death and resurrection that he would deal with sin and that he would make peace between God and man. It would be this way that he would pay the price for all sinners and all types of unbelievers who would trust him as a crucified Savior and Lord. But for those who would continually refuse him, those who will so fiercely reject him, who are so determined deep in their hearts to deny him that they defame him, Jesus calls these people blasphemers of the Holy Spirit. Why? Why does he use this language, blaspheming, the Holy Spirit? Well, because it's the Holy Spirit's job to open up eyes to see Jesus for who he is, a glorious and beautiful Savior. It is the Holy Spirit's job to make Jesus known. It's the Holy Spirit's job to help us see ourselves as we truly are, not good people who deserve a break, but sinful, broken people who need a Savior. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict us of sin and lead us to repentance. But there are people in every age who will refuse the Holy Spirit. And in their refusal of the Holy Spirit, and in their attempt to justify themselves, they will deliberately misinterpret Jesus. They will deliberately defame Jesus. Did you know that in the face of conviction, we always have two options, only two options. Did you know that? No matter what it is. In the face of conviction, when the Holy Spirit begins to convict you, you always have two options. You either humbly repent and receive God's grace or you justify yourself in your position. That's it. There's no in-between. You either humbly repent and see yourself accurately and receive God's grace or you justify your position and you run further and further in justification of yourself down the path of destruction. And this is true in all of our lives when we're faced with our sin. 
Am I quick to repent? Am I tender-hearted toward the Holy Spirit? Or am I hard-hearted and stubborn and I justify my sin? Kind of that, that inner uh, defense attorney comes out in your heart, right? And you begin to plead your own case rather than letting Jesus plead your case. Well, here, what Jesus is saying is he's saying that those of you who are refusing the Holy Spirit in your justification that you don't need a Savior and that you don't need a Lord and that you don't want to surrender your life, you, you then end up misrepresenting Jesus or misinterpreting Jesus or, worse of all, you end up defaming Jesus, And in Jesus' day, it was the scribes and it was the religious elite who did this. They continually said he was either demonic or later they changed the narrative again, but it was still a false narrative. And they said, what? He's a blasphemer. He's a criminal. He needs to die. We need to get him out of here. In our day, there's multiple ways that people do this. Like I said earlier, some people say, well, he was just a good teacher of love and peace, but he's not, he's not Lord. He's not a resurrected king of all creation. And it's interesting, like, again, it's illogical. It's just illogical. And then when you challenge the, 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 just how that makes no sense, you go, okay, well, if he's a good teacher of love and peace, then explain to me how a good teacher would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That seems pretty exclusive. If he's a good teacher of love and peace, explain to me how he would say something like, you will not... Live unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. If he's just a good teacher of love and peace, like how would he say something like what we'll see in just another chapter of Mark? The Son of Man must suffer and die and be raised again. He's either a lunatic, a liar, or he's Lord. Who is he? That's what Mark is putting before us. There are others in our day that will say they won't be as charitable with Jesus in their dismissal of him and their uh, unwillingness to make him Lord. They'll, there's others who will be less charitable and they'll, they'll, they'll actually hate him. They'll actually, they actually despise Jesus, they despise his word, and they despise his church. But again, what is Jesus doing in our text today? Jesus is trying to take us deeper in our unbelief. He's trying to get to what is underneath a person's unbelief. And he's saying, before you go down that path of eternal sin and eternal separation of God, would you see what's underneath your unbelief? And for some, those that want to reject Jesus in our day, it's ego, maybe it's pride, maybe it's pain, maybe it's uh, wounds that they've experienced in the church or by Christians. And he's saying, see what's underneath your unbelief and bring it to me. I'm a gracious Savior and King. His word offers a warning. Don't go down that dangerous path. Don't swim in the dangerous waters of rejecting Jesus. And I would be an unfaithful preacher of the gospel today with this text on our calendar if I assumed that there was no one in this room this morning who has not been on the path of refusing Jesus, the real Jesus, not the Jesus that you've, um, that you've constructed in your own mind, but the real Jesus, justifying yourself and doing so. And if this is you, I just want to ask you to consider the source of your unbelief. What is it for you? I mean, history will not deny Jesus of Nazareth. History will not deny his life, his words, his death. Jesus will, history will not deny an empty tomb. If you have not yet made Jesus Lord, what is the source of your unbelief? Of your unwillingness to even consider Jesus and his claims of who he really is. I want to plead with you this morning 
that you do, no, do not let your unbelief send you down the path of eternal sin and eternal separation from God, but that you would repent and that you would believe the good news this morning. And as we close, I want to take us back to verse 28. Look back there with me one more time. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins can be forgiven, and whatever blasphemes they utter. You see the good news here? What good news. What good news for us. That with repentance and with humility of heart, there is ample grace available to each one of us this morning. There's so much grace available in, our, in Jesus. A lifelong well of grace is available to us as we journey with him, as we struggle, whether it's in seasons of doubt when our expectations aren't being met, whether it's in moments of discouragement in which we sin, whether it's seasons of confusion where we look for the things of the world to be our source of strength and hope, whether it's in moments of boredom where we fall into temptation and settle for the unfulfilling pleasures of sin and idolatry, there is always forgiveness, full and final forgiveness in Jesus when we repent. What a Savior. What a Savior he is. Aren't you glad that he gives us strong, clear warnings, that he comes to us in grace and truth to sober us up when we fall into the trap of unbelief. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reveals to us a mighty Savior, a Savior who shows his power and weakness, a Savior who binds up our greatest enemy, sin, evil, and death, by giving up his own life and rising again on our behalf. Oh, love of God, we thank you. We praise you for what a faithful Savior you are, for your steadfast love, for your ability to forgive all sin. The cross was that powerful. And I pray that in this time of response, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us where there are areas of unbelief in our life this morning. And that you would, in your kindness, lead us to repentance. That we would keep trusting you. That we wouldn't change the narrative about you. We wouldn't refuse your grace this morning. Holy Spirit, we know that you are present with us. And that you speak to us in our hearts and in our minds. Open our ears to hear from you. Open our hearts to receive you. We pray that as we sing, as we respond and go to the table, that you would nourish our faith you would transform us and change us more and more into the image of the Son. We pray that you would make us a church that walks by faith, that you would make us a church that encourages one another in our seasons of doubt, that we point out the truth to one another, and that we call one another to repentance. Help us to be a community of light in a, city of, uh, in a world of darkness and in a city that needs you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.